Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Romans chapter 11. So we're going to look another time at Israel tonight. And to begin with, we're just going to look at one verse here. Verse 1. And Paul writes in Romans 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? And his answer is, God forbid. And that's the question we're going to begin to look at tonight, should I say. I think we're going to need another week on this. So we've already seen, we asked the question, has God cast away his people? We're going to begin to look at that tonight. And so we've seen Paul's answer. What was his answer? Pretty straightforward, wasn't it? God forbid. I mean, I can understand that kind of language. I mean, it means no way. Because when I asked my wife if I could have a kiss before we got married, that was basically her answer. God forbid. No way. And I didn't ask again. So it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Pretty seems pretty straightforward. Yet, to a lot of theologians today, it's not that straightforward that he's cast away his people. So last week, just for a quick review, this won't take much time on this, we looked at the question, why the Jew first? And we were looking at Romans 1.16 and Romans 2.9-10. to And we gave five reasons why the Jews are given priority over the Gentiles in the gospel. And the first one was, they are God's chosen people. And one of the verses we quoted was Amos 3.2, where God told the nation, you only have I known. You only have I known in that special way like a man knows his wife. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. And the second reason we said was the Jews were entrusted with God's special revelation. And that's Romans 3.2, where Paul wrote, unto them were committed the oracles of God. And the third reason we gave that the Jews are given priority over the Gentiles and salvation is salvation is of the Jews. And Jesus told the woman of Samaria, you worship, you know, not what we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And that's John 4, 22. And the fourth reason we gave was that our Lord Jesus Christ was himself a Jew and his mission was to whom? It was to Israel, the Jews, the nation of Israel. He told the Syrophoenician woman, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we went through and looked to where Paul kept that up. It didn't stop at the cross, did it? So after the cross, for many years afterwards, Paul's method of evangelism and missionary work, he would go to the synagogues first. He would call the Jewish elders of the city, which they were in almost every city back then. He would call them first and present the gospel to them. And then when they rejected that, he'd say, what to them? Well, you've counted yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Therefore, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he said, they'll listen to me. But they got it first. The Jews got it first, right? The last reason we said is they had great privileges and all the privileges we named. But also we said with that greater blessing and privileges also came a greater judgment if they rejected or if they accepted the blessing went to the Jew first and that's what we read in Romans 2 9 to 10 so I would say based on what we looked at last week that the Bible clearly teaches that the nation of Israel and we're talking about ethnic Jews national Israel are God's chosen people but down through the years many and, I, and a lot of them are godly men it's not like they're all unregenerate or wicked but mainly Christian theologians and pastors through church history have believed and taught that even though Israel 
was God's people in the Old Testament times, but because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they have now been replaced as God's people. They've been replaced by God's people, the church. And so that thinking, that doctrine, that teaching is known as replacement theology or supersessionism. If you want to get technical, which most people aren't going to be talking about supersessionism. But I will say this, that word supersessionism, which means the same thing as replacement theology, the word itself means for someone to sit in the seat of another. In other words, someone else was sitting there, you've gotten them out, and now you are sitting in their place. It really paints a pretty good picture. But we'll just refer to it from here on out as replacement theology. Now, let me give you just a couple brief definitions of what replacement theology is. I'll tell you, I'm not going to go through and teach everything they teach, because I think it put everybody to sleep. But here's, in essence, what they would say. One theologian said it this way, God chose the Jewish people after the fall of Adam in order to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. I would agree with that, the Savior. But they say then, after Christ came, however, the special role of the Jewish people came to an end, and its place was taken by the church, the new Israel. You'll hear that a lot in replacement theologians. We have the church as the new Israel. Another modern theologian, Ritterboss is his name, says this, simply, the church takes the place of Israel as the historical people of God. And that's, that's the essence of what replacement theologians believe. And it's becoming a very popular view. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But basically it's saying the church is now Israel. The church is the new Israel or the true Israel. And the other Israelites, it's not that they can't be get saved, national Israel, but they're no different than any other nation. That's in essence what they will say. So there's two pillars to this theology, two things that most of them will believe because there's variations on all of this, just like anything, okay? And one of the pillars is that national Israel, ethnic Israel, has forfeited its status as a special people of God, and it will never again have that special role in God's plan. That's what they teach, unless it's through the church. So they become part of the church, well, then they become part of the plan. But Israel in and of itself is no longer the special people of God. That's one thing they'll say. The other one is, I've already said this, but the church is now the true Israel or the new Israel and has permanently replaced national Israel as God's people. So from here on out, they'll teach. From here on out, the church is Israel. Old Israel in the Old Testament, the national, that really doesn't mean anything. The church has permanently replaced them. So they won't say Jews can't be saved, but they have to enter in to the church it's all the church now is the, what, what they're saying. And so what I want to look at, and I hope this isn't boring. It's not boring to me, and I'm not going to cover everything that I could, believe me. I'm just going to try to hit some highlights. And I think it's important, though, that we understand that this sounds foreign to us here. It should, because it's never been taught here. But it has been the predominant viewpoint of the majority of the church down through the centuries up until fairly recently, actually. And now it's coming back. And that's why I'm talking about it. That's why I'm teaching on it. And that's why I'm going to say what I'm going to say. So it began, this whole replacement theology, it didn't just start like 500 years ago, a couple hundred years ago, 60 years ago. It started like right after the apostles died. So Justin Martyr, 
He was the first one, and he died in 165 A.D. That's not far after the last of the apostles. And he was the first who identified the church as spiritual Israel. So just briefly, I want to say there's reasons that brought this replacement theology into place. And there's three main reasons. One of them would be obvious is that the church became more and more and more predominantly filled with Gentiles. It became a Gentile church. And also, the other thing that really started influencing and bringing in this way of thinking is when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple destroyed in 70 AD, and the city was leveled in 135 AD. Two times the city of Jerusalem was wasted. And they're saying, the church started saying, look, that's God's judgment on the nation of Israel. He's rejected them because of that. And the other thing that happened was, and we can thank Mr. Augustine, St. Augustine for this, is they started interpreting clear promises made to the nation of Israel and saying they were allegories, just symbolic, things that are now fulfilled in the church, not taken literally. You can't take these promises in the Old Testament literally. So that is what's behind this thinking today. And I'll tell you, it's in, in my notes, but I'll say this replacement theology, it goes right along with ah millennialism. And that's another thing we haven't been taught much here. Ah millennialism is another growing belief. Premillennialism used to dominate evangelical churches. Ah millennialism, I'm telling you, there's pastor and theologian after another are throwing away premillennialism and saying we're amillennial. And amillennialism basically, just to give a quick summary on that, says there will be no millennium. Ah means no. And they say the church, us right now, we are in the millennium. We're experiencing it. And so they allegorize everything in the book of Revelations. And I had to read several books on that in school, and it was painful. I was like disagreeing with everything. I had to read them anyways. But listen, so here's what was going on. The first generation of church leaders, all the beginning church leaders were what? They were Jewish, every single one of them. But then what happens is after the apostles die, almost all of the church leaders became Gentiles because the gospel spread out of Jerusalem. And especially you've got Gentile church leaders in the big cities like Rome and Antioch. So after 135 A.D., Jerusalem had its first Gentile bishop. <laughs> and after that, Adrian, Emperor Hadrian, because the Jews kept causing trouble. They kept having to go in there and wipe them out. They got tired of it. So Emperor Hadrian forbid any Jews at all to come into the city of Jerusalem. No Jews could come into Jerusalem at 135 A.D. And so from there on out, the church became known as the Church of the Gentiles. So whereas everything's Jewish at the beginning, right? The church is at Jerusalem. It's Peter, Paul, <laughs> James. You know, it's all Jews doing everything, right? The church goes out from there. But after a while, Jerusalem's not even have Jews in, in charge. They're diminishing. The Gentiles are taking over everything. And so what happens then? Now, these names to you all might not mean anything, but... If you study church history, these are big names here. Two early church fathers, Justin Martyr and Origen, they made these comments. So listen, to us it doesn't mean anything because we're so far removed from these men. But these guys were the pillars back then. Two of the pillars, Justin Martyr and Origen. 
And they commented, they made comments on the destruction of Jerusalem. And Justin Martyr said this, the destructions of Jerusalem were God's judgment on Christ rejecting Jews. And so that language starts having an effect on people and their opinion of the Jews. And he also said this, we, the church, are the true Israelitic race, the true Israel, Justin Martyr. And this other man, Origen, who was a hundred years after him, but another respected church father said this, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. These calamities they have suffered because they are a most wicked nation, which although guilty of many other sins, yet has been punished so severely for none as for those committed against our Lord Jesus. So his whole thing is they're a wicked people and they're being punished now because they are the ones responsible for crucifying the Lord. So this attitude starts then. That's very early on in the church and it became more defined and hardened and it continued on in the church right up until the Reformation. Now let me put a little thing in here because I don't have time to cover everything, okay? There were men along the way that had a heart for the people of Israel, but they were few. They were the few, the majority, they were against the nation in the sense of saying God had replaced them. Now, I will, because I don't have this in my notes, but I, I want to throw this in. So one person, and these are people that were willing to stand against the crowd, and one man I got a lot of respect for, the more I learn about, is Charles Spurgeon. Now, he was a lot later in the 1800s, but Spurgeon said he just read Romans 11. Like, we'll probably get to next week. I don't know. We'll get all that far this week. But he reads Romans 11. He says, it seems clear to me, and it seems clear to me when I read the Old Testament promises that, that there's no other way to take that than that God is faithful, and he will literally fulfill what he promised to those people. Amen. And when I read Romans 11, he says, how else could it be? Right. And Spurgeon stuck up for him, and there was a few other men along the way, but most haven't. So the attitude of anti-Semitism grew up to the Reformation. So around 380 AD, like I said, I'm just relax. We're not going to be going through a major history lesson, okay? I promise you. But around 380, these are some of the major figures that had major influence on how the church thought. There was a man called John Chrysostom, a saint, John Chrysostom. He was considered by everyone that knew him to be a godly man and a great preacher of his day. In fact, his name meant golden mouth. That's what his name meant. But listen to this. Listen to these words. Here's John Chrysostom. Here's what he said about the Jews. He said, the synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it is also a den of robbers and a lodging for wild beasts. He's saying the synagogues where the Jews meet to worship. He says it's a brothel and it's wild beast. He's calling the Jews wild beast meeting there. He goes on to say, but when God forsakes a people, what hope of salvation is left? When God forsakes a place, meaning the synagogue, that place becomes the dwelling of demons. Indeed, the synagogue is less deserving of honor than any inn. It is not merely a lodging place for robbers and cheats, but also for demons. This is true not only of the synagogues, but also of the Jews, the people themselves. And I shall try to prove it at the end of my homily. And he goes on. I'm giving you one excerpt from this man. He ranted and railed against the Jews 
It's unreal what he said. One of the worst. But yet, he was very highly respected. And so his words had weight. And listen, what he's saying about those synagogues, that was the thinking that just carried right on through Europe and Christianity. And is it any wonder that when anti-Semitism starts arising again, what do they attack? The synagogues. They're doing it today as we sit here. They'll burn these synagogues, throw stones and rocks, and deface the Jewish synagogues. Here's a quote from this Joel Richardson. So, like I said, I'm just highlighting things. If you all want to read a really good book that's written recently, this man named Joel Richardson wrote a book, When a Jew Rules the World. And he goes into a lot more detail, but it's not a hard read, and it's worth reading if you really want to understand what's going on. When a Jew rules the world, I would recommend it. But he said this about John Chrysostom. He said, John Chrysostom called the Jews harlots, goats, pigs, and demonized dogs. Hitler called them vermin. One man was crowned by the Christian church as a saint, while the name of the other rightly will forever live in infamy. But he's saying, who's worse? And John Chrysostom, he called him just as bad, if not worse names than Hitler does, but yet he is considered a godly man. But here's the thing, the reason I'm bringing him up, he's considered a pivotal figure in the shaping of Jewish hatred within the Christian church. A pivotal figure. So here's what happened. Because of these things he would say, these anti-Jewish, all this rhetoric, anti-Jewish rhetoric that he would give across the pulpit in his sermons, physical attacks started happening on the church. And especially when you had the church being wed to the state of Rome. So you've got now the Roman army. You've got power behind the church itself. And you start having physical attacks. For example, and I could give a bunch more than this, but just one short one. In AD 415, Cyril, the patriarch of Alexander, here's what he did based on Chrysostom and his influence. He expelled every Jew out of Alexandria, tore down every synagogue in that city, and Jewish homes and businesses were burned to the ground. And I can, like I said, I can get the book. You can read a whole lot more examples than that. I just don't want to wear everybody out. We have one other pivotal figure about this same time. So Christostom is 380 AD, and one of the church's most recognized and great theologians, St. Augustine of Hippo, came around AD 415. And listen, we owe a big debt to Augustine. We really do. Because much of what we understand about election, the sovereignty of God, and election came through him. So I think he was a godly man and all that, but yet he still had some wrong things to say. So he also believed that the Jews were replaced by the church. But here's the thing with him. He could see, he's looking around, he's like, well, yeah, God's judged them, but there's Jews everywhere. Somehow they stay alive, and he's preserving them. So here's one thing that Augustine did that I don't think helped the church out at all. He was big on allegory. He would take something like the Good Samaritan story, and he would read something into every little detail. Everything represented something. And that's kind of how he approached a lot of things in the Bible. That's not a good approach to take, okay? But what he did was, actually, if you don't mind turning there, give you a break from looking at me, turn to Psalm 59, leave something. We'll be back to Romans here eventually. But 
I want to show you what allegory will do. <laughs> so he took this psalm. He came up with this theory about the Jews based on Psalm 59.11. And Psalm 59.11, reading the King James Version, says this. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. And so Augustine interpreted that as, now you look at that. That is, he, that's David writing at a Jew. He's not talking about slaying the Jews. But Mr. Allegory, St. Augustine, took that to mean this. He interpreted it to say, do not kill them, meaning the Jews. Otherwise, my people will forget, but by your power, make them homeless wanderers. So he took that verse and said, that's how that applies to the Jews. That's what God intended. I mean, how do you get that out of that? But he did. So what he proposed was, and I'm telling you, he had so much weight back then, everything he wrote, he didn't write that much about the Jews. But a man like him that was a great thinker, a theologian, and, and truly a, you know, a great man, everything he wrote became, had a big influence. So what he proposed was then that this violent assaults that started with Chrysostom, that they'd be stopped because he said, don't, don't burn their synagogues, don't take their property, don't kill the people. He says, because in reading this verse, I believe God wants the Jews to wander the earth as vagabonds, to be a witness to God's judgment for disobedience. That's what he believed, and that's what he got out of this verse. And that's the way the church acted for the next 1,000 years. So Augustine's thing was, don't destroy them. Treat them as vagabonds and outcasts under God's judgment. And can you believe that? For a thousand years, the Catholic Church, who was the only church, there were no other churches back then. You didn't go anywhere else to church. Unless you went somewhere, you're going to get persecuted severely. So there were real believers, and there were true churches. There has always been. But for a thousand years after that, the Catholic Church dominated the scene. Now, if you want to read some really boring church history, read those thousand years about all the popes and all that. That is, put you to sleep big time. That'd probably be a good thing to get on cassette. You can put it on right before you went to sleep. It would work. <laughs> so just to summarize what went on, though, for those thousand years, listen, this is what happened. The Jews were subject to sporadic persecutions, kidnapping of their children, forced baptisms and conversions. This is what's going on during all this. Forced baptism and conversions. How many of you know anything about the Spanish Inquisition? Oh, boy, were they after the Jews and Christians. Anybody with a false profession, they were after you. And so that's what they would do to the Jews. Harsh economic pressures. The Jews suffered seizure of property, expulsion from countries, forced enslavement, many cases of that, and multiple massacres of entire communities. So what would happen was the popes and the bishops, they'd say, oh, we're not going to totally wipe them out but they would turn a blind eye when people would do these things. Just let it go on and happen. And the first crusade that happened in 1096, the soldiers are supposed to go liberate the promised land from the Muslims, but as they marched through Europe to the Holy Land, they killed large numbers of Jews in Germany, France, and England. 12,000 Jews were massacred in the Rhine Valley, and that's called now the first Holocaust. So what my whole point in saying all this is, is this has been going on a long time. And most people don't bother to read these days, I know. 
And most people don't know much about church history, but I think we need to know this. I think it will help us out. So, because you have to understand, how do we get to the Holocaust? Hitler didn't just step in and come up with all this stuff on his own. Like, this is what I want to do to these people. No, there's a lot of things, and this is part of it that led up to it. And what about the little yellow stars you see? That didn't originate with him. That wasn't his grand idea, because it started with the Muslims in the 7th century under what's called the Pact of Omar. So Jews and Christians under that pact had to wear the distinct emblems, these distinct emblems that made them stand out from other Muslims. And the yellow band or badge for the Jews began with the Muslims in the ninth century in Baghdad. And from there, it spread, that idea spread into Europe. So it came from the Middle East, and all of a sudden, Europe leaders think this is great. And Louis X of France, or the ninth of France, he imposed a fine on any Jew that was caught in public not wearing his yellow badge. And it was all going on all over. It became a common practice on and off for six centuries in Europe. So, as Joel Richardson says, when Hitler came to power, he simply took the long-held Christian practice of having Jews wear a yellow oval badge, and all Hitler did was make it into the yellow star of David. So that was nothing new, what was going on there. And that brings us to the Reformation, the Great Reformation in the 16th century. So we're moving through history pretty quick. And Martin Luther. So I don't have much more history to give you, but I want to give you this, because I didn't know this about Martin Luther. But you have to listen to this. This is what he wrote and preached, and this was called On the Jews and Their Lies. Now, Martin Luther, when he early on became converted, was pro-Jewish people. And what happened was, as he tried to witness to them and evangelize them, and he sees how they are, he started getting harder and harder against them and disliking them and started changing his theology and his opinion about the Jews to where at the end of his life, he was as bad as they get. Because listen to this. What then, Martin Luther wrote, shall we Christians do with these damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. In this way, we cannot quench the inextinguishable fire of divine rage nor convert the Jews. We must prayerfully and reverentially practice a merciful severity. Perhaps we may save a few from the fire and flames of hell. We must not seek vengeance. They are surely being punished a thousand times more than we might wish them. And so he says here, let me give you my honest advice. Now listen to this. Here's his first piece of advice. Martin Luther, their synagogues should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt, so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity, in order that God may see that we are Christians. The second thing he said, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. And for this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not the masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives. Martin Luther wrote that. 
third thing he said they should do. They should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, he said, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews, for they have no business in the rural districts since they are not nobles, nor officials, nor merchants, nor the like. He said, let them stay at home. And the last thing, to sum it up, he says this, to sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be freed of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Is that something? I never would have dreamed. But that's what he wrote. And that's the way a lot of people over there in Europe thought. And guess where Martin Luther was from? Germany. Now, all of them weren't that bad. But I'd say a lot of people today will say what Hitler carried out was nothing more than putting into actual practice what Martin Luther advised. All right? So when the Holocaust happened, and it happened, the world was appalled at what happened when the world found out. And as a result of that, when, they, when it all comes known, the Lutheran and Catholic churches, they all had all this anti-Semitic writings in their teaching. They had to take it out. The Lutherans had to say, hey, we, we don't have anything to do with Luther on that stuff. And they had to renounce what he wrote. <laughs> but there it was. But listen, you can't erase thousands, thousands of years or over a thousand years of thinking from a culture by just signing a paper. Because that's the way those people thought over there. You don't change people's thinking by just signing a paper and saying we don't want anything more to do with that. So listen, this Catholic theologian, speaking of the Catholics, his name's Hans Kung. He wrote this. He said, Nazi anti-Judaism was the work of godless anti-Christian criminals. But it would not have been possible without the almost 2,000 years of prehistory of Christian anti-Judaism. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that teaching hadn't have been prevailing in the church for almost 2,000 years. Hitler would have never come close to getting away with what he did. And no, now it's been 70 years since the Holocaust, right? And anti-Semitism, I just told you last two weeks ago, it's back on the rise in Europe and worldwide. Because listen to this, this lady named Melanie Phillips, she's a British social and political commentator. Listen to what she said. After Auschwitz, this vicious theology, this replacement theology, unsurprisingly disappeared from view. So that's true. It went away. A lot of churches say, hey, we need to think again how we look at the Jews in light of what's happened. And replacement theology kind of went under the carpet, so to speak. But she went on to say this. It disappeared from view, but it turns out that it only went underground. It's coming back. So here, listen, one last thing. David Brog, who's the executive director of Christians United for Israel, wrote this. The days of taking evangelical support for Israel for granted are over. So here's what's going on. Now you got people like Rush Limbaugh. He is pro-Israel, and he's got quite a following, doesn't he? But you know what? He's getting older. And you know what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to Justice Scalia. One day, he's going to die. And you know what's going to happen? I'm not promoting Rush Limbaugh, but there's a voice that is pro-Israel. 
You know what's going to happen? That voice is gone. And you got John MacArthur talk about him a little bit. He's out. I don't agree with a lot of his teaching. He is so anti-charismatic, I would not recommend anybody listen in that sense. But he's strongly and biblically supportive of Israel. He's 80 or close to it. He's going to die. And I'm telling you, the people that are coming up, they are not pro-Israel. And you all, younger generation, think your minds won't be changed. I'm telling you, it's happening. And that's why I'm teaching on this. And that's why I'm trying to make a big deal about it, hopefully. But this lady went on, or this man said this, the days of taking evangelical support for Israel for granted are over as they are increasingly confronted with an evangelical, friendly, anti-Israel narrative. And I'm saying, I've been to the seminary. I'm telling you what this guy's saying true is true. It sounds good, the way they present it. It sounds biblical. It's not like they have no scripture for their case. He says, for more and more of these Christians are turning against the Jewish state, questioning Christian support for the Jewish state is fast becoming a key way for millennials. That's this next generation coming up. Fast becoming a key way for millennials to demonstrate Christian compassion. Because what they're saying is, oh, man, we can't support Israel because in doing that, we're against the Arabs and those poor Palestinians. Look what Israel's doing to them. That's how the propaganda is being put. That's how it's being. And all that sounds good, doesn't it? Because I'm not against the Arabs. I think they need to be evangelized, right? You're confusing things when you do that. And I'm telling you, that's what's coming. And it's going to keep coming. And the devil is, we've been teaching on spiritual warfare and false philosophies, and doctrines of demons. And how do doctrines of demons come forth? Through men teaching. And he says, you think it's not going to be subtle? Paul says, look, they come as ministers of righteousness. The devil's agents, that's how they come. They're ministers of righteousness, angels of light. So it will be subtle. And so what should our attitude be? Because listen, Hitler was only a type of the Antichrist, wasn't he? And look what he did. A lot of smart people, a lot of Christians followed him. Let him rise to power. And the Antichrist is going to be, Hitler will be nothing compared to him. But look what Hitler did. That's what the Antichrist will be like. So like I said, what should our attitude be? And so let's go back to Romans 9 through 11. Let's go to Romans 9 because I think we're going to look at 9, 10, and 11 and we'll start with 9 tonight because I think understanding Romans 9, 10, and 11 will give us a proper understanding of how we should view the Jews. So, you know, have you ever in reading Romans wondered why all of a sudden you're going along hearing about God's plan of salvation for eight chapters and all of a sudden all this stuff is stuck in here about the Jews 9, 10, and 11 that's what it's all about it's like what in the world what's that there for you ever wondered that or maybe you haven't maybe you need to read Romans and wonder but I have because Paul's just spent eight chapters taking us down the Roman road of salvation chapters 1 and 2 he's telling us what Jews and Gentiles are all sinners hopelessly lost. Chapter 3, he's saying everybody's condemned. And the only way you're going to get right with God is not through works, but justification by faith. Chapter 4, he says Abraham is the father of faith to everyone that believes, Jew and Gentile both, saved by faith and not by works. 
chapter 5 of Romans, he's saying the results of justification by faith are peace, joy, salvation, and hope. Chapter 6, he says we're dead to sin through the death of Jesus Christ and God's grace. Romans 7, he's telling us the law can never make you righteous. It can never give you the power to overcome sin in your flesh. That's what Romans 7 is basically saying. And so he goes on in Romans 8 to say, well, then how does it happen? He's saying life in the spirit, the Holy Spirit does what the law could never do. It sets us free from sin. That's what Romans 8 is all about. Gives us the power to live a holy life. He's saying the law could never do that. Then all of a sudden, beginning in Romans 9, Paul breaks out. He's saying all that. He breaks out into this lament over the state of his fellow Israelites. And so look at that. Look what all of a sudden. <laughs> he's just got through in verse 39 of chapter 8 saying, height nor depth nor any creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he, all of a sudden, boom, chapter 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that my, myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And so why is he doing that? Why does he start in on that in chapter 9? And here's the reason. He has just spent eight chapters quoting the promises of God of the Old Testament that promises salvation to anyone who repents and turns from their sins and put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He spent eight chapters doing that, quoting the Bible throughout the Old Testament. And people would be saying, can I though, Paul, can I really trust this God? Because he made promises to Israel and called them his chosen people. But when I look at them, they don't seem to be doing too well right now. And the promises seem to have failed. And you're wanting us to believe these promises you're giving us, right? Why is Israel, they would be saying, not enjoying the new covenant as a nation if they are the covenant people of God? And they're saying, Paul, are you sure that this word you're telling us, this word of God, is true? Really true? And that's what he says in verse 6. He's answering that. Look at verse 6. He says, oh, not as though the word of God has taken none effect. And that word none effect means failed. So all these blessings he's talked about going to Israel, he's saying it may appear that way, but it's not as if the word of God has failed. It hasn't failed. He goes on to say, because not all of Israel has turned to the Savior, it doesn't mean the word of God has failed. He's saying, you've got to understand the Old Testament. It's what he goes on to do, because the Old Testament teaches that there is an Israel within Israel. That's what he goes on to prove in chapter 9. So typically, in our church, in most places, or even I would probably, you go to Romans 9 because you want to teach on the doctrine of election, and you never even bring in the Israel, the big picture. But that's really what he's talking about. In teaching the doctrine of election. He's trying to show that there is an Israel within Israel. And he demonstrates that in two ways from the Old Testament. So they all know, all the Jews, all the people, even the Romans, people knew that Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. But yet not all of his seed is considered to be Israel. 
And that's what Paul starts always said. Look, Abraham had two sons, did he not? Isaac and Ishmael. Yet only one of them is counted as the seed. And that's what it says in verse 7 or 8. Because verse 6, he says, For not all Israel are, for not, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. That's what I'm saying. He's saying there's an Israel within Israel. Verse 7, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And some would say, so he's answering another objection as he moves on. They will say, well, that's just because Ishmael was born of Hagar and she was just a slave. So that's why you're not counting her. And that's why he goes on to give the second argument in verse 10. He says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not born, neither having done good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calls us. He's like, okay, so you're saying that Ishmael was born of a slave woman, and that's why I'm not counting her in the argument. He's like, well, wait a minute here. Let's just move the next step up. Isaac had two sons by the same woman, Rebecca. And they were twins. There's no difference, right? Jake and Hannah know about that. Twins. But only one of these twins was counted as the seed, even though both came through Isaac and Rebekah. But only one of them was the chosen or elected as the seed. And so what's he telling them here? God's promises haven't failed. He's saying that being of the natural lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and later Jacob is not what constitutes you as the seed or the people of God, even within Israel, but it's by grace and thus by faith. So the children of promise, even within Israel, are the seed. And so Paul's telling them, look, the word of God is true. God never promised that every child that came from Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the seed but only those that physically and spiritually came from them are the seed. It has to be both, not just a physical descent. They are the true Israel, the ones that have a physical birth and the ones of spiritual birth. Give me one second here. Let's see if I can draw this. So you've got the big picture, Israel within Israel. And so you have the children of the flesh. And within that, excuse my writing, Abraham's descendants. So this is all children of the flesh, Abraham's descendants. But <laughs> this is the, this little smaller circle are the children of the promise. So coming from Abraham, you have out here, you have Ishmael. But within here, you have what? Isaac. So it's all Israel of the flesh, but within that, it's the seed of promise, Abraham. They're all Abraham's descendants. And then you have from Isaac, you have what? You have Jacob in here. But Esau, who's one of the twins, is born outside. Does that kind of help you see it a little better? So you've got an Israel within Israel, within natural Israel. These this is the true Israel, if you want to say that. When he says not all of Israel is Israel, this is the true Israel, the children of the promise. 
but they're all descendants of Abraham. So Paul goes on in his chapter 9 to say that he answers the question in 14. And some people would say, well, man, that's not fair. Hey, you got Isaac having kids, and he's got two twin brothers, but he chooses one, and it says he hates, loves less the other one. And so in 14, somebody, he's raising these questions that are going on in people's heads more than likely. He said, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God that he picks some and not others? And Paul goes on to say, hey, God in his sovereign mercy is in no way obligated to show mercy to anybody. Look what he says in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so he says, hey, it's not of him that wills. It's not of him that runs. It's not of him that can claim any kind of descent from any kind of father or mother, but it's of God that shows mercy. And that's who constitutes the true Israel. And he goes on to answer another objection in verse 19. So we're getting a little bit off. I want to do a little preaching here. He says, why does he yet find fault? Verse 19, for who has resisted his will? In other words, if God's sovereign and he gives mercy on whomsoever he wills and he hardens whomsoever he wills and he sovereignly does that and we have nothing to say about that, then how on the day of judgment is he going to find fault with us? Because all we have to say is, hey, you never showed mercy to me. You hardened me. I couldn't help it. That's what some people will say. And listen, people in America, and I'm saying Brother Hamilton taught, I know he understood the sovereignty of God and election and taught it faithfully. But I'm saying, I hear conversations with people of our church through the years, and I'm saying people don't get it. They don't get the fact because it's un-American. And it seems cruel and heartless that he reaches down and picks some and just totally bypasses others. And if you want to say it, they don't have a chance, so to speak. That doesn't seem fair. He should give everybody the same chance. Isn't that how we tend to think as Americans? Believe me, we do. And that's what gives birth to Arminianism and this false teaching of everybody has to have the same chance. And that's not what the Bible teaches it doesn't teach that everybody has the same chance because the answer is found. Well, Paul, first he answers, how does he answer? He says, verse 20, Nay, but, O oh man, who are you that replies against God? In other words, he's saying, if you really knew who you were and who God is, you would never have the audacity to raise that question. And that's the truth because what's he been doing all through this book so far, he's showing everybody's a sinner. <laughs> the answer to that question is why everybody, if God's not unjust to leave some go and to save others, the answer is down in verse 21. He says, has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel to dishonor? So here's what we need to remember. This is the key to understanding this. What is the clay? He says, the potter has power over the clay. We got to think of what kind of clay is he talking about? He's talking about the clay of Romans chapter one and two. All of humanity is what? Wicked. 
There is none righteous. That's what this lump of clay is. It's a lump of unrighteous people, sinners. The whole lump deserves to be cast into hell. Totally just, totally fair. God would be doing nobody any wrong. And that's what he's saying in verse 21. Has not the power over the clay over the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? When that lump, us and Adam became wicked and sinful, we lost all obligation God had to show us anything other than justice. And people don't realize that. They somehow think God owes people something. He somehow owes his drunken the gutter something because look at how bad of a life he's had. Or these people over in Africa, the way they have to live. He owes them something. He doesn't owe them anything. And as many a missionary has found out, when you go over there and try to share the gospel with them, their wicked hearts come out. They aren't any more interested than the fat cat on Blueberry Hill. So everybody's under sin. We've got to see that. And for God to save one person, to take one pinch out of that lump and take it out of there and have mercy on it and show his love and grace. That's what it is. Pure mercy. He doesn't have to do it. And we've got to see that. Amen? (laughs) So he goes on, Paul goes on in verses 19 to 29. He's saying that's exactly what God has done. Through the years, he's reached down and elected some out of Israel. And he goes on to say, but now he's reached down and elected out of this mass of sinful humanity. He starts with Abraham, starts getting people that way, but he starts reaching in and getting Gentiles. Because that was the promise to Abraham to begin with. In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That was part of the covenant, wasn't it? So look here in verses 22 to 24. He says, well, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has afore prepared unto glory, even us. He, Paul's including everybody here, all Christians. He's saying even us whom he has called, not just of the Jews, Paul says, only, but also of the Gentiles. So he's saying God has reached down out of that mass of sinful clay and he's pulled out some vessels of mercy, not just of the Jews, he says, but of the Gentiles also. Praise the Lord, right? And he goes on in verses 25 and 26 and he says, look, I'm telling you, it's the Gentiles. It's people that are not called his people, which is what the Gentiles are. Look in 25, he says, and he has also said in O.C., it's Hosea, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And so again, you know what Paul is doing here by quoting this Old Testament verse? He's showing again that God's word is true, isn't he? The question was raised at the beginning of this chapter. Or can we be sure we can trust God and his promises? And Paul is showing here, look, God promised that the Gentiles would be saved. He promised that some out of that lump that were Gentiles would be brought. And he's quoting the prophet Hosea. So he's saying, sure, you can trust the word of God because his promises are true because he promised through a prophet that lived 700 years before this was written 
That prophet said, you Gentiles will be saved. So don't be surprised. Don't worry about the Jews because he brings them up in verse 27. He deals with them. He's saying Isaiah now, he also cried concerning Israel. So here was God's plan for Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, he says a remnant will be saved. He's saying, well, look at these people. They can be as numerous as the sands of the sea, but yet God is only picking a remnant of them out, right? Just like there. That's the way it's always been, Paul's saying. You don't have to doubt. That's always been the way the word of God has been written and planned. This is nothing new. God's always been faithful to what he said he would do. <laughs> so the point is, God is sovereign in his mercy over Israel and the Gentiles, and that's all he's ever committed himself to doing or promised to do. We just read it. That's what Romans 9 is saying. So his word is true and everything he's predicted in the salvation of his people has come to pass just like he said it would. That's what Romans 9 is all about. It teaches election and it teaches individual election, not just as some people want to say election of nations. No, it's talking about an individual election because nations are made up of individuals. But he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's saying, look, I never promised that the whole nation is going to come in to this new covenant. I never promised that, that that's the way it's going to start. And Paul is showing them that because it's never been that way. It wasn't that way from the beginning that every one of them that were Abraham's seed were going to be the children of promise. God's never been unfaithful. He's always done what he said he would do. So I want to pick up next time, but don't shut me down yet. I want to make one last point, okay? So I want to pick up 9 and 10 next time, but I want to make one point so I don't have to make it next time. And believe me, I won't give you a history lesson next time, okay? So you can all relax. But listen, replacement theology, we've said it already, says that the church is the new Israel or the spiritual Israel. But listen, in the New Testament, the word Israel and Israelite occurs 77 times in the New Testament, okay? The word Jew occurs over 190 times. Now, I would say that every time these words occur, they're always referring to national Israel, not Gentiles as the true Israel or spiritual Israel. There's only two places that are disputed, and I don't want to get into that argument. There's two verses that are disputed that it could be talking about the Gentiles being Israel. I would disagree with that. I would say there's none. But the New Testament never confuses national Israel with the Gentiles. And that's important to know as we go forward. So what I would like us to see just here in Romans, I just want to go through and show where Paul is talking every time about Israel, it's national Israel. Because that is seminal to the argument. So you're in nine, just briefly turn back to three, chapter three of Romans. Romans three, we're just going to look at some places where he talks about Jews and Israel. And we'll show there's no confusion. So Romans 3, 9, it says, What then are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles. They are all under sin, but all under sin, but he separates Jews and Gentiles there. Okay? Look down in verse 29 of the same chapter. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. 
There's another case. He's not confusing Jews and Gentiles. Who he's talking about. Now go back to chapter 9, and we'll just look at 9, 10, and 11, a few places there. This is way through the whole New Testament. So Romans 9, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For I could have wished myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. And he makes it clear here who he's referring to. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 4, who are what? Israelites. No problem there, right? Same chapter 9, look down in verse 27. Isaiah also cried concerning who? Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Once again, it's national Israel. Verse 31, he just got through saying in verse 30 that the Gentiles followed not after righteousness, but they got the righteousness of faith. Verse 31, but Israel, he contrasts them, which followed after the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Once again, there's a distinction. In chapter 10, verse 19, Paul says this, but I say, did not Israel know? He's talking about the nation. For Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. In verse 21 he says, but to Israel, the nation, he says, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Once again, he's talking about the nation. And look at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I say then, has God cast away his people? God forbid Paul says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's clear what he's talking about there. So then you go down to verse 7. He says this, what then? Israel, the nation, has not obtained. That's what he seeks for. But the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And then finally, in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 11, Paul writes, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, the nation, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And the reason I went through all that is because verse 26 is the critical verse. Because a lot of these modern theologians, they want to say all Israel there means all Christians, Jew and Gentile from all time. And I'm saying we just went through all that. If you study on your own, Paul never confuses national Israel with the Gentiles. And anytime he uses the word Israel, he's always talking about the nation. And so what he's saying here in verse 26 is all of the nation that is left at the time the Lord comes back National Israel will be saved. Yeah. And Martin Luther would say it ain't going to happen. Right? And there was a man, I will give him this much credit, just to show you, <laughs> you got to be honest when you interpret the Bible. So there was a teacher at the seminary I had, and they were going to have a panel of millennial, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, and they were going to have a debate. And so the man that they picked to be the amillennial person, he didn't believe that Israel was going to be restored, but he did a commentary on the book of Romans. It's a good commentary. And in doing that, he's saying, when I am honest about the way I look at how Paul uses the word Israel, the nation Israel, there's no way he's switching back and forth from one verse to the next to national and then Israel being the Gentiles. He doesn't do that. 
And it's obvious that he doesn't. And he had to tell the president of Southern Seminary, I'm sorry, right before this panel discussion, but I can't be on the amillennial side of your, you're going to have to find somebody else. Gave him like a week's notice, which you don't do that. I'll tell you what, I was thoroughly impressed with that because I thought at least here's a man that was honest with his interpretation and his conviction. Because if you read that, that is what you will get if you're not trying to fit your theology in to what that Romans 11 verse 26 is saying. But that is the pivotal verse right there. So, like I said, the reason we're teaching on this is because it's becoming a growing trend in the church to say that Israel has been replaced. And here's the reason I'm wanting to teach on it too. And next week we'll be more looking at scriptures is because it's critical. Because I, I could just say, look, I can name three books. If you all would read them, you'd be fine. We can go on to something else. We can go on to how to raise your kids. You know, something you all think is more practical. But when we went on our, I've talked about this. We went on our Israel trip and these guys are all upset that some of us might think that Israel's being restored and there is something here about Israel being a nation again. So they had this big group meeting, all right? So we got these PhDs lined up here and there's one guy that was just a master of divinity student, another guy who was just hosting our group. But you know where these two guys had been? They'd been to John MacArthur's church as kids growing up, listening to John MacArthur go through verse by verse, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and teaching them that this is what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, going through so they had an understanding. And so when these guys stood up there, and they're smart people, PhDs, they got verses. to These guys right here were like a bedrock. And I sat there and listened to this conversation, how this debate went, and these guys didn't get the least bit ruffled. And to me, they put these men, the replacement people, to silence with their arguments. And I'm saying that's what we need to be able to do. And so, like I said, my hat's off that those guys paid attention, and my hat's off to anybody that will systematically go through the Word of God so that people understand it, because that's the only way we're going to be kept from error in these last days. Amen? Amen. Amen. But thank you for your attention. We're done. <laughs> Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the Word of truth, and we just thank you, Lord, that You've shown us and will show us even more clearly that Israel, the nation of Israel, is your chosen people. And that when you come back, Lord, you will save the entire nation, those that are left, the people that are left as a nation, for your glory because they are your people. And we also know, Lord, that we can literally trust your literal promises in your word, that you are true, that you are faithful. And also, God, I just ask that through this Romans 9, you'll give us all a healthy respect for your sovereignty, that you have mercy on whom you will have mercy. And also, Father, I just thank you, Lord, that you've had mercy on us and that your grace has been extended into sinful humanity and that you pulled us out, removed us from darkness, and put your spirit within us and gave us life. We're just so thankful for that. And we just pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.